here. So, uh, so we got Matt, and Matt helped me out with the thing. And I know the joke is about the mats, but I'm kind of just curious. Do me a favor. How many, how many mats here? Just raise your hand if your name's Matt. Not as many as I thought here. I thought it was going to be more. Matt and I were talking about putting a... Yeah, okay. All right. I, Matt and I were talking about maybe putting a moratorium on children naming their parents Matt, right? So no more Matts. You just can't do it because there were so many. But it's not as bad as I thought, so I think we're good. Well, um, as Matt said, um, uh, my name is Braden Greer, and um, we just moved from Maryland, Gaithersburg, Maryland. We're at Covenant Life Church. Actually, my wife was there her entire life, um, and I was there since 2001, and then I was on staff there since 2006, and we were, I was a pastor there for about eight years, and uh, God had been birthing a desire um, for uh, uh, planting a church and preaching the Word and seeing people come under the gracious rule of Christ and His Word. And, uh, you know, it, it's been about four or five years we've been thinking and praying about it and talking with the, the elders at Covenant Life, and uh, they just sent us out September 1 with their blessing. And uh, very grateful for them. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you feel this way at anything that God's called you to, but sometimes there was just a lot of fear, you know, uh, just a lot of fear and saying, oh, my goodness, I, have, I don't have what it takes. I don't have the skills that most church planners have. I don't have, uh, you know, great management or leadership skills and all these things. But then I just come back to the Word and I say, okay, I may not have all that, but I know your word is powerful. And I was talking to Alan Ballard about this. I don't know if you know Alan, but we were, we were talking, and, you know, God spoke all things into existence from his word, and now he re-speaks all things into new creation in the church through his word. And so it's his powerful word, really, that's, that's driving us to see uh, to, to go to Northeast Columbia and to see folks come and know Jesus Christ as their Savior, come under His gracious rule and reign, and, uh, and so that's what, that's what we're hoping to do, um, probably pretty like-minded to what you all are doing here, and uh, so we're very grateful for that. It's exciting. We've been there for just over a month, connecting with people, good connections with the church downtown Riverside. James is coming, as he mentioned, and uh, I'm going to be getting coached for um, eight, ten more months, uh, and then we're meeting with a, a small group that's there that was that's with this church, Riverside. So we're meeting in the Northeast as a small group. Many of those folks have probably formed part of the core team as well as anybody else who comes along. Um, and uh, so we're, we're excited about it. See what the Lord does. It's one of those, you know, fearful but exciting opportunities. See what the, the Lord might do together. Um, I think that's all I wanted to say. Anything else I should say about? Okay. Well, yeah, feel free. We have no worship leaders. Um, great job today, by the way. <laughs> really outstanding. And did you know the text, too? Because a lot of the songs seem to fit the text. You didn't know the text, really? Did. Yeah, he did. Because a lot of the, I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I could quote that during the sermon. So, well done. Well done. Um, well, let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into God's Word together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great mercy towards us in Christ. There is no one like you. There is no God besides you. He declares the end from the beginning, from ancient time things not yet done. There is no God who came besides you. 
became a man, walked in our shoes, lived the life that we could never live, died, rose again, and is, and is promising to come back to reign victorious forever. We thank you that we serve you. We know you. You've opened our eyes to see your great mercy in Christ, his blood that washes away all our sins, your spirit that's come to fill us and has filled us and will fill us again so that we might know Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that as we look at your word today, that Jesus Christ would be magnified, and as a result, there would be, there would be new hearts of faith here today, that there would be people who are at this moment estranged from you, who, who come to know you as their father today. And I pray, Lord, that those who do know you as father, that their faith would be deepened, that their joy in Christ would be uh, increased, Lord. I pray for all of us, myself included, Lord, we need you. We are desperate for you, Lord. We speak, Lord, but we, we want to hear your voice. We want to hear your voice in Scripture. So, Lord, may your voice be the loudest today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in John 2, but before you turn there, if you want to turn somewhere, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 30, because we're going to look at Jeremiah, and then we're going to go to John. So if you turn to Jeremiah 30, and, and the verses will be on the screen too. Um, Jeremiah, just to the, uh, the right of Psalms and Proverbs, right next to Isaiah. And as you're turning there, I want us to think for a moment about anticipation. You're talking about anticipation, when you anticipate an event, something that's coming up how it increases the enjoyment of that event, right? It, the, the more you anticipate it, there's just, you're starting to experience the joy of the event. I learned this in college. Um, remember the, the uh, whether, whether it was high school for you, grade school or college, it's all the same, uh, the, the cafeteria food, right? <laughs> that burger that was some shade of gray that I'm sure is not on the color scale, and, and those soggy French fries and that terrible cardboard pizza. I mean, the whole, you remember that, right? Oh, my goodness. It was awful. Well, about a month before Thanksgiving break, when I was at college, I would start anticipating the Thanksgiving meal. 30 days out, I learned this. It really got me through about 30 days of, of college cafeteria food. And I was starting to enjoy that food even before it came. Right? So I would, I would literally, so this is what I do every Thanksgiving. I'd take the plate, I'd fill it up with every single side that was on the table, just this mound of food, because it's a feast, right? And I wouldn't take a bite until I had the whole thing, and I'd just take that in for a moment and then dive in. So I would anticipate this meal. I would, I would, I would look at all the sides on my plate and wonder, you know, how many kinds of sweet potatoes my mom going to have this year? What kind of turkey? Are they going to deep fry one? They're going to, you know, they're going to roast two. What are they going to do, you know? So my mom was always over the top of Thanksgiving dinner. And there's always, you know, six desserts. It's, it's, it's the highlight of the year in terms of feasting. And so I'd anticipate this. And it would increase my enjoyment of the event. It also kind of got me through the dark days of cafeteria food. Social research is actually, they, they studied this, right? And they, they conclude that anticipating a future event increases the enjoyment of the event. They concluded this by looking at various factors. I don't know all the details, but they, they end their study with this. They, they, they suggest the following. They say it might be a good idea to make that restaurant reservation well in advance, to buy the tickets to the show beforehand, to start planning that vacation ahead of time, this increases the amount of time one can spend savoring his or her future consumption. 
You get extra time to imagine all the different foods you might eat, the songs the band might include in the set list, the feeling of the sand between your toes, and so on. Extra time anticipating the event increases the enjoyment of the event. I think we know this through our own experience. And I have no chapter and verse, but I do wonder sometimes if this is part of the reason why it would, from one vantage point, appear to take God so long, from our vantage point, to provide His Son, to provide the Savior, to provide the Messiah. Now, it was long to us, but not long to Him, of course. Israel waited an awfully long time for her Messiah. There was groaning, there was, there was mourning, there was weeping, there was, there was exile. The whole nation displaced. There was punishment from God for their disobedience. There, there were promises of hope in the midst of that as well. They, they, were, they were slaves. And then, right before Christ came, remember this? There's hundreds of years of silence from the Lord. Nothing crickets. But there was also anticipation of redemption. They anticipated God to redeem His people, that one day God would deliver and restore the fortunes of Israel, that one day they would prosper. Remember David and Solomon, those kings, those iconic Israeli kings that they were, they were They were in the halls of heroes. And in Solomon's day, do you remember this? That silver was like nothing. Silver was so plentiful. They were so prosperous in Solomon's day. Silver wasn't even counted. It was like nothing. It was like pennies. No big deal. We had so much silver. That's how prosperous they were. And one day, God would restore those fortunes, and that helped them anticipate that future day and get through the difficult days. And in order to appreciate John chapter 2 today, we're actually going to spend a few minutes, I mentioned Jeremiah 3, some of the anticipatory passages that will help whet our appetite and appreciate Christ in John chapter 2 when he shows up on the scene. So in Jeremiah 30, as I mentioned, right to the right of Psalms and Proverbs, just after Isaiah, we're going to walk through this briefly. So Jeremiah is sometimes called the weeping prophet because he was prophesying about God's coming judgment to the people of of Judah, the people of Judah in the southern kingdom. Israel was in the north, Judah in the south, around 600 years before Christ came on. And then in 586 BC, right before, 586 years before Christ, Judah did in fact experience God's judgment. So these prophecies came true, and Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon. People were, were, were taken into exile. Judah was warned, but Judah did not repent. However, all is not lost. God gave these hopeful prophecies to Jeremiah amidst all the doom. And Jeremiah 30 through 33 contains some of these hopeful prophecies that would have sustained the faith of the remnant that was, that was taken uh, during the captivity, among whom would have been Daniel. In, in Daniel itself, it says he had access. He read the, the prophecies of Jeremiah. So Jer- Daniel himself was probably sustained with some of these very words that we're reading. So we're going to scan through these chapters, try to get into the mind of, of, of those who had been taken away after Jerusalem was destroyed and then who would be awaiting God's salvation through God's Messiah. In chapter 30, verse 3, God announces what I said before, that he's going to restore the fortunes of Israel and bring them back to the land. But right now, there's, there's such great distress that he uses an illustration saying uh, as, as, if, as if men were holding their stomachs because they were in labor pains. And he doesn't mean like men and women, or, you know, in the general sense. He means 
men. In, in, it's so bad. They're, they're almost in labor pains, the throes of labor pains. But God says it's even worse than just the captivity. In verses 12 and 13, Jeremiah 30, he says, For thus says the Lord, and I think we have this, yeah, for thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable, and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. There, there's no medicine. There's no ordinary cure. Search the whole earth. You will not find a way for Israel to be restored to her God and restored to her great place as one of the nations that was feared among all the people. There's no way to restore them back to the innocence that they had in the garden with Adam and Eve and God walking with God. There is, there is no, look all around. Search the whole earth. There is no fountain of youth. There's no restoration. There is no way. It's incurable. This is from God himself. He says this, all is lost, it seems. But then verse 17 of chapter 30, God says this, for I will restore health to you and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. So God himself, where there is no cure, God himself has the cure. And in verse 21 of chapter 30, here's the cure. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me for who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. There'll be a prince that comes out of Israel and this prince is gonna be utterly unique. He will himself approach God. He's not gonna go through a mediator. He's not gonna go through sacrifices. He's not gonna go through a temple or through the priest. He will himself approach God. Who does this? unless he's worthy to stand in the presence of God Almighty. And then in chapter 31, we learn that there's going to be joy once again in Israel, depicted dancing and merrymaking. In verse 5, God says they're going to plant vineyards in the land again and enjoy the wine from them. doesn't seem that big of a deal to us, but can you imagine that? Jerusalem's destroyed. You're in captivity, and God says there's going to be a day in the future you're going to plant vineyards and you're going to enjoy the wine back in that same land. You're going to go back in there. God, God who warned you and disciplined you says that vineyards will be planted again. Verse 12 of chapter 31, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil. And later, In chapter 33, another picture of what's happening in this Jerusalem as it's been restored. God says that though Jerusalem is desolate, one day they will hear this. Jeremiah 33, verse 11. The voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. So there's going to be a future day. They're going to be satisfied with abundant grain, wine, oil, dancing, joy, the sounds of, of, of marriage and feasting once again. God is going to restore the fortunes of Israel. But right now, in Jeremiah's day, things were bleak and it was bad, but God was giving them something to anticipate. And now let's turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you're new to your Bible, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel. John chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, 
It was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. He manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So do you remember in Jeremiah there, one of the common features Uh, The coming of the day of the Lord was abundance, right? Abundance once again. And not just any kind of abundance. Abundance of the necessary provisions of life, grain and oil, but also wine. Wine was mentioned there. Wine for Israel in that day and age, for, for anybody in that day, it meant abundance. It meant abundance. It meant gladness, joy, feasting, celebration. You brought out the wine at the feast day. You brought out the wine to celebrate. Now, it probably wouldn't have been immediately apparent to maybe the disciples at the time, but upon careful reflection on what Christ had done in this passage and how he went about it, John and his readers certainly would have understood and realized the significance of this particular miracle that Christ performed. So the glory at at, at the end there that the disciples saw and they believed in him, the glory at first in that moment probably was just the glory of the supernatural chemistry, right? Water into wine. But the glory that John points us to in this text is far deeper. And it has to do with the centuries of anticipation that Israel had. Jesus wasn't doing party tricks, right? He wasn't just entertaining the crowds and keeping the party from dying down. So if you think about this, so if you've grown up in the church and you've heard this, you've seen the felt board thing, you know, Jesus turns into a six-stone water pot, you know, but come at this at the first time. Just think about this like, okay, you're reading and somebody says, hey, hey, you've got to read about this guy. He's God, but he's a man, and he comes down to earth, and the first thing he does is turn water into wine. That's the first thing he does to kind of introduce his ministry. I mean, how many, is, is Clemson a big deal here, right? We're near Clemson, right? So how many people went to Clemson? How many? Okay, so you go out to Clemson, and here's your evangelistic strategy. You're going to the frats, and you say, hey, I want to tell you about the Messiah. He turned water into wine. And they're like, awesome, this guy's my kind of Messiah. Tell me more. I mean, think about this. This is pretty strange. This is a pretty strange first sign. This is going to be the quintessential sign that's going to mark out his ministry, water into wine. And guess who finds out about it? Some servants, his disciples. He doesn't even make a big deal out of it. It's in a backwoods town, Canaan, Galilee. This is pretty odd. There must be something else going on here than just the chemistry, the supernatural chemistry of turning water 
into wine. Well, let's walk through the story, see if there's any details here in the text that can tell us that something else is going on. So on the third day, verse, verse 1 there, and I know what you're thinking because I was thinking the same thing, uh, resurrection, right, on the third day. It's more likely for various reasons that this actually reference to the third day completes the first week of Jesus' ministry. So John's gospel, I'm sorry, Genesis begins at the beginning, right, in the beginning, right? John's gospel begins at the beginning, in the beginning, in the Genesis is, is the word there. In, in the Genesis was the word, in the beginning, and so what John's gospel is doing here, it's, it's sort of, here's the first week of Jesus, sort of saying something as big as the first week of creation is here. Something as awesome and as amazing has showed up on the scene like creation. So in, in, in Genesis, we have the, the, the creation week. In John's gospel, in a sense, we have the recreation week. Jesus has come. And he's going to bring all things into subjection, all things under his feet. In addition, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 50, I think it is, uh, you remember the, the scene where uh, Nathaniel is one of the disciples, and he comes up, and he's not real sure about Jesus, and Jesus says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And he's like, whoa, I believe, I believe. And Jesus says, you believe just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You're going to see greater signs than these. Well, just several days later, at Cana in Galilee, Nathanael's own hometown, Jesus does greater signs, and then he keeps doing greater signs. In fact, John has seven signs in, his, in the Gospel of John that he records that proclaim Jesus' glory. Well, the setting is a wedding in Cana of Galilee, like I said, a town of no special importance, at least until now. Mary was there, Jesus' mother. Jesus came, the disciples came. And Mary's interaction with the servants lead us to a few things. And the fact that Mary and Jesus were there, this might have been a family friend uh, at the wedding. And then Mary seems to be very comfortable ordering the servants what to do. So she might have had some role, whether it was a caterer or just helping out the family, that kind of thing. There might have been sort of some official role that Mary has here at the wedding. And she comes right to the point, right? We're told of the problem. The wine has run out. And, uh, you know, to our modern ears, it really doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Like, this is, this is the big deal in this text that Jesus is going to solve. This is the big problem. The wine's run out. Um, so we moved from Maryland, right? Um, and in that county, uh, the, all uh, alcohol sales had to go through the county. So grocery stores couldn't sell beer, wine, alcohol. He always had to go to a specialized store. And I come down here to South Carolina, and all of a sudden... It's like wine is flowing everywhere, right? I mean, it's at the grocery store. I mean, you can go anywhere and buy it, right? Um, so it's, it's actually far easier to get uh, to acquire wine. Can you do that in this county too? You can buy it in the grocery store? Okay. Yeah, so uh, what's that? Just not on Sunday. Okay. So yeah, so it's even, even more available. So I'm even especially aware here how easy it could be. Just, just go down the street, just send somebody out and get some more wine. What's the big deal? Why is this the, 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 the point of conflict in the text here? Well, it's hard for us to understand, I think, with our modern mindset. Obviously, it's, it's much harder than that. The wine had to be cultivated, and, and all, you know, it just wasn't easy to acquire. Not only is it hard for us to understand how, you know, the, the, the difficulty of acquiring wine, we also don't understand, I think, the gravity of what it means to, to, to not have wine, to run out of wine at a wedding. My younger sister got married this past summer, and uh, do you have total wine here? 
Yeah, so my brother and my dad and I went to Total Wine to get the wine and the beer for the, for the wedding reception, that kind of thing. And my, we, we, you know, got it all calculated out, how much we're going to need and that kind of thing. And uh, my dad, really, you know, he's throwing a party for his, for his daughter, and he wanted everybody to have a good time. And he didn't want to run out of wine. Um, he wanted to be careful to make sure we got the right amount. Well, we actually had the opposite problem. We had all this extra wine and beer at my parents' house for quite a while. Um, but, but what did he want to do? He, he, he wanted to, and there's probably some degree of, well, he didn't want to reflect poorly on him if he ran out, but also just wanted people to have a good time, right? But think about this. Multiply this by about a factor of 100, and we're just starting to get to the point where here's the, 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 the gravity of the situation here. The groom was supposed to provide wine for seven days, and it was a major social faux pas to, to run out of wine. It was, in that shame and honor culture, it was a big deal. It was a lot of shame. It was a bad way to start out your, mar- your wedding, your marriage. In fact, it was so bad, sometimes you could be open to a lawsuit for not providing enough wine for seven days. You could be sued. This is a big deal. There's shame. It could, it could, you know, just set them on a terrible trajectory in their, their wedding. And the whole family would be shamed as well. You know, we're not told if the groom, who's probably a teenager, probably two teenagers here, right, uh, planning this whole affair, we're not told if he was delinquent in buying, uh, buying enough or maybe, you know, more guests came. Maybe Jesus' disciples were really thirsty on them walking down the road. I don't know. Or, you know, it kind of made me think, you remember the scene in Lord of the Rings where uh, Gimli and, what's the elf's name? Legolas. They have the drinking contest in the pub, right? And, uh, and there's like 30 tankards of ale that, that Gimli's just polished off, and he, and he says he's fine. He finally falls over. And then, uh, and then Legolas says, I think I feel something tingling. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Gimli and Legolas showed up and just tapped all the wine. We, we, just, we don't even know. We're not told of why. So I guess that's not the, really the important thing. Here's what we do know. All the world is a stage for the glory of Jesus Christ, and this happened that Jesus Christ might be glorified and magnified because he solves the problem. Christ's glory was manifested. Mary gets right to work, and she tells her firstborn the situation. They have no wine, and like a good Jewish mother, she believes in the resourcefulness of her firstborn son, her special son, whom angels came to announce his birth. This one is special. He'll take care of it. Now, does she expect him to do a miracle? You know, did he heal his brother's broken leg? Whenever he, I mean, we, that's all speculation. We have no idea, right? But we do, it does appear that Joseph is, is, not, is nowhere to be found, right? And most people believe that by this time he had died, which means that Jesus would have taken over the role of providing and caring for the family. And so Jesus would have been that, that uh, firstborn son who's caring for his family. So she expects him to get it done. And Jesus' reply adds to the tension of the situation. Uh, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, woman kind of sounds rude to us, uh, right? I mean, if I called my mom woman, (laughs) that might be the last time I address my mom. I don't know. No, she's she's kind. She would just laugh. But it sounds sounds rude to us, right? Uh, but read in a different context, I don't call my mom that, and I don't suggest that if you're a teenager in here, all right? I didn't say that. I didn't say, call your mom woman. I didn't. Um, in John 19, 26, remember Jesus is there on the cross, crucified, beaten, whipped. I mean, just, and you imagine the, the pain, and, and, the, and he knows what's coming. The Father's going to turn his face away. The sin of the world is on him. There's his mother, and there's the Apostle John who wrote this Gospel of John. It says, woman. 
behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He provided for his mom in his death, and, and John takes her into his home. He, he, he says, here, I'm providing for you. I'm in, I'm in the, the worst agony, but I'm providing for you in this moment. And he uses the word, he uses address woman. So it's not rude. It's not mean. Clearly, it's affectionate in the other context in John 19. But the interesting thing is, he also does have a bit of a rebuke for her. He says, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? This shortage of wine, this is the groom's problem. What does it have to do with me and you? He, he does communicate to her in a way that says, yes, you're my mother. I came from you, but I transcend you, right? Uh, I, he's her Lord and her creator, and she doesn't call the shots with Jesus, even though he's, she's his mother. We don't call the shots with Jesus either, do we? He can do all that he pleases. Like I said, most commentators believe this is a mild rebuke. Think not to this extreme, but remember when he said to, to Peter, he says, Peter says, you know, you know you're not going to die, you're not going to die, and he says, you know, get behind me, Satan. Bas- basically saying, Mary, Peter, you have the things of the world in mind and not the things of God in view. Um, so he does have a mild rebuke for her. She doesn't know the ramifications of what she's asking Jesus to do, but Jesus knows full well what the ramifications are, and that's why he responds, it's not my time or not my hour is probably a better way to say it. In John's gospel, Jesus' hour is the hour particularly of his glorification, his exaltation, especially his death, especially his death, but also including his resurrection, the glory of his resurrection and ascension. So when he says, it's not my hour, he's saying, it's not my time to die. Well, that's an odd way of responding. They're just asking you to provide some wine, Jesus. What's the big deal? What I think Mary seems to unknowingly asking Jesus to do is to knock over that first domino that's going to lead to his death. And her greatest heartbreak as a mother, she sees her firstborn crucified before her very eyes. She doesn't know that, but Jesus knows that. She has no idea, but Jesus knows what she is asking. I heard another pastor point out this as well. So Jesus is a single man at a wedding. And at some point at a wedding, nearly every single person will do this. They'll think about something, right? Think about their future wedding. They'll think about the day. What's it going to be like? What am I going to wear? Who's, who's he? Who's she? What, who's going to be there? What's a, you know, there, there's, you're thinking about that future wedding day. And Jesus, too, though he would never marry on earth, he was looking forward to his wedding day, most likely. Perhaps he was thinking about his wedding day and providing wine for his wedding feast. He did that through his blood. He provided wine for his bride, the church, at a great cost to himself. When she says, they have no wine, you provide wine. It's not my hour yet. It's not my time to die. Mary, what you're asking of me, it's not yet here. And I will be in great agony in the garden before I go and do that. It's not my hour yet, he says. It seems so strange. But in the light of what is going to come in Jesus' life, it seems to make more sense. And he gives up his life willingly. He doesn't do so begrudgingly, but he does it in the Father's time. It's not his hour yet. He lays down his own life willingly. And then 
Mary just seems to brush off the rebuke. And she tells his servants, do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever he tells you. And that's probably about the best advice one could give, right? Come into Jesus, do, do whatever he tells you. Now, I know she was talking about the shortage of wine, but it's really, it's really a, a stirring exhortation for all of us. Do, Jesus says it in his word, do whatever he tells you. He would not lead us astray. So the tension's high, and Jesus says, this isn't my problem. Can you imagine being the servants there? Like, my goodness, what's going to happen next? This is kind of weird. Are we in some family dynamic here that we shouldn't be, you know, they behind the scenes on this? It must be kind of odd, caught in the middle of that. And Jesus is just about to give them instructions on how to solve the problem at hand. But then John interrupts the dialogue, and he, he notes something vitally important that I think is important to understand this whole passage, the meaning of the whole passage. He tells us this in verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there used uh, sorry, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Six stone water jars. Um, Notice that he doesn't just say, fill up some water jars. Jesus says, fill up some water jars. Fill up, what, what, what have you got? Just fill it up, you know? No, this, this narrative is really sparse on words. It's really quite short. You think about all that's taking place. And, he's, and John is very specific, not one wasted word. He says there were six stone water jars used for the purification, the Jewish rites. The guests would have come and they would have washed their hands and perhaps feet uh, with water from these stone jars, maybe some of the dishes and that kind of thing, so they would be ritually clean. They wouldn't eat with uh, dirty hands. Uh, and um, sounds like it's just hygienic, right? But it goes beyond that. These jars could hold 20 to 30 gallons of water each. They were stone jars. Do you notice that? Not earthenware because bits of dirt could get into the water, and they were serious about purification. They were deathly serious about it. But where did this practice come from? Search your Old Testament for a minute. Okay, did you find it? No, you didn't. It's not in there, actually. Now, there are washings prescribed in the Old Testament when someone touched a dead body, when the priest was going into the, to the inner courts. Um, various, various times for washing was prescribed. But do you recall in an interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees? It's recorded both in Matthew and Mark. In Mark 7, the Pharisees confront Jesus because his disciples didn't wash before eating and after being in the marketplace and that kind of thing. So they go to the marketplace, they go to eat, they don't wash their hands, and the, and the Pharisees say, what are, you, what are your disciples doing? They, and the, the Pharisees use this word. They said they're eating with defiled hands. They're eating with defiled hands. Now, defiled doesn't mean just dirty. That means impure. But their hands weren't defiled according to the law. They didn't touch a dead body. They didn't have leprosy, right? They weren't defiled according to the law. Jesus turns back to his disciples, Mark 7, verses 6 through 8. He says this, he said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the, to the tradition of men. See, the Pharisees were zealous for a supposed holiness, and they had created a whole religious tradition that went beyond what the law of God had required. In fact, they, they developed a whole, this whole system based on this logic. So, you know, uh, if you want, to, you want to please God, right? God is holy, and we're to obey him, right? Good. Okay, we're all in agreement here. And, and God says, don't go beyond this line right here. You know, you go, you go past this line, and you dishonor me, you're disobeying me, so don't go past this line. But you want to please God, right? You want to be careful to please Him, right? Well, 
you know, instead of that line, let's draw the line back here. Let's draw the line right here because why would you go up to the edge of the cliff? I mean, really, really. You really want to stay back further away. So let's draw the line right here because that will protect you from dishonoring God and His holiness. Now, that sounds kind of noble at first. You know, you, you want to be careful to obey God's law, right? Well, Deuteronomy 4.2 says this. This is God, right? You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. You shall not add, you shall not take away. It was not noble to add to God's commands. It was not noble. In fact, in doing so, they violated God's law in Deuteronomy. Listen, the Lord does not need our help to improve his law. The gentleman who led worship here, what's your name? Joe. Joe. So Joe started off with uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, right? The word of God is sufficient. God doesn't need our help. He, we, God, you, you know, you could have been a little bit more specific. I'm going to help you out here, right? You just weren't quite as strict as you needed to be. You don't understand how all these people are disobeying. You know, you never said, God, that it's, it's, it's wrong, it's a sin to drink alcohol. I mean, you said it was a sin to get drunk, but when you gave Christians the freedom to drink alcohol, you know what they're doing, God? They're getting drunk. So here, I know you would have done this if you'd seen this situation, but I'm going to help you out. I'm going to tell them there's no drinking at all, period. What are we doing there? Adding to God's law. We're adding to God's law. You know, um, it doesn't say you can't hold hands or even kiss before marriage, um, but since so many people mess that up, I'm, I think you're better off if you just don't. In fact, if you honor, honor God, just don't. That's, I mean, yeah, he didn't say it, but I'm saying it. You know, I mean, now, my wife and I were very careful. I, I recommend people being careful, but there's a difference between self-imposed restrictions, of which I do those sometimes, right? And I encourage us all to consider where we are weak, where we might need to restrict ourselves. There's a difference between that and teaching as the commands of God, the traditions of men, right? Now, I don't know your situation, but I think we're pretty, hearts are pretty common, right? Temptations are pretty common in Christian circles. Um, and, and we are tempted at times, whether it's with ourselves or with fellowship with others, to say, you know, God says this, but it's back here, really. If you, if you really want to honor him, it's back here. And you know what? The Spirit of God is not helping you to keep to this, but he is going to help you keep to this because this is his word. This is his law, right? And we, need to, we do not need to add or take away. God doesn't need our help. He condemns adding and taking away from his word. Now, where am I going? Am I way off, off the deep end here? Where, well, these six stone jars, I think, based on that passage in Mark 7 where God says you leave the commands of God and hold the traditions of men, I think these six, six stone jars represent the, the, the Pharisees and those who go along with them, people who'd set aside God's law and were seeking a self-salvation from their own willpower, seeking to add to the commands of God, seeking to be favorable in God's sight by what they do and how careful they are to obey God's law. Do you, do you know there's a name for that? I don't know if I've used it already here, but it's called legalism. Seeking to be in God's good favor by what I do, being careful to obey, it's legalism. Now, we should be careful to obey, but our motivation is totally different. 
The motivation is totally different. We are not called to pursue a self-righteous pursuit of holiness that's not dependent upon God's mercy. Even David in Psalm 51, way before Christ came, right? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. What does he appeal to? He doesn't say, God, I've done. No, mercy. He appeals to the steadfast love of the Lord. He appeals to mercy. And we're called to appeal to his mercy in order to be favorable in his sight. Jesus says to the, to the servants to fill up these stone jars with water. They do just what he says. They fill it up to the brim. Then Jesus tells the servants something that probably rattled them pretty, pretty much. You know, he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. My goodness, they know what's in there. It's just water. And they might just get chewed out for bringing water to the master of the feast in front of the whole party. I mean, this is going to be explosive. But they do it. They do it. Now, uh, interestingly, some commentators note that the word in in the original there, in the Greek, draw some out, is almost typically used, almost always used of of drawing some out of a well. So, some commentators say, you know, the the idea there is the imagery is you fill up these six stone water jars, now go get some from the well and bring the wine. It's kind of interesting. Now, it's not conclusive, but the imagery there is to say that Jesus has a well of wine an unending supply that doesn't come from this former uh, traditions of men. It, it comes from a, 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 another source entirely. It's possible that it's that. Well, like I said, it's kind of inconclusive. So it's, it's possible that Jesus says, no, I'm going to take what you use as ritual and I'm going to fill it with absolutely new significance. And what, what, you, what you try to do in washing yourselves, forget it. I am the one who provides the wine that you need. Not sure, but like I said, I think they both communicate something glorious about Christ who is greater than the empty religion of Israel, just in different ways. Well, we know the rest of the story. Somewhere in transit, that water's turned into wine, and not just any wine, right? The best wine. The master of the feast gets the attention of the bridegroom, and if the bridegroom knows what's happening, if he was tipped off to say there's no wine, and, and, then, and he sees the servants come out with them, he sees the men... We don't know if he knew or not, right? But, but, he, but he, he drinks it and he says, bridegroom, come over here. Come. Everybody serves, you know, the, the, the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, and what that means is they're intoxicated. And that, and that's the point. Their, their standards are down because they're having a great time. They've had a little too much wine. And, and, and she says, everybody does that. When they drink freely, they serve the, the cheap stuff. But you, and he goes, ah, no. What, what's, gonna, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? You've served the best wine reserve the best wine until now. He knows he didn't reserve the best wine until now. He knows what he bought. He knows he didn't reserve. Maybe he knows it was all gone. But the bridegroom at, at, at the last hour is saved from open shame. Marriage ruined. Family shamed. The whole, I mean, it, just, it was bad. Jesus covers his shame. Jesus actually cared about these two teenagers in this, really, in in the grand scheme of things, somewhat trivial matter. That's not his mission, right? Save these two teenagers from family shame. It's far greater than that, but it's not less than that. Jesus did even that. And before we get to the greater meaning, consider this for a moment. I know we discussed this a little bit towards the beginning, but Jesus performs this behind-the-scenes miracle, right, in, a, in an unimpressive town in front of a few servants and a handful you know, of his disciples. 
Think about that. Think about the, the, the character of our Savior. He, he could have gone into Rome right in front of Caesar, had 100 Pharisees, you know, and, and ro- you know, raised 50 people from the dead in front of everybody. That's how he could have started out his ministry. And then he would have gone out, you know, with a bang, right? It would begin with a bang. But he didn't. Unimpressive. I mean, think about the humility, the character. He, he doesn't need anybody's approval. He, he's not striving here as most would do. This is, this is the real Savior who is confident in who he is as the God-man. The lack of wine and then Jesus' use of these purification jars seems to be a statement about the barrenness of Israel and her religion. Israel has run out of wine, so to speak, and it would appear because they're pursuing a self-religion, a self-salvation. Jesus enters in to transform their false religion into a great salvation. He himself provided the much-needed wine so that the celebration can keep going and the ongoing joy of his people can continue. And in doing so, he condemns all manner of self-salvation, fills up the old jars of empty religion, so to speak, and then brings the new wine of salvation and joy in abundance. I have three quotes here. I don't know if they're on the one or separate slides, but uh, Kostenberger says this. I love these. At the Cana wedding, Jesus is the bringer of messianic joy who fills up the depleted resources of Judaism. See, they were, they were hoping, they were looking forward to a day, and it was a day of abundance, including wine. And he comes and he brings wine. And he brings not only just wine, he's bringing in the new era. This is the new, something new is happening, entirely new. God is bringing it about. Blomberg writes, Jesus is bringing the wine of the new age, a joy that transcends and replaces the old water of Jewish ritual. And then this one, this last one by Ritterboss, he says, now there is wine as plentiful as water, indeed as plentiful as all the water of purification, which has flowed continually, but cannot take away the sin of the world. Do you see what's taking place here? This is a sign, and it's signaling or signaling, right, something. Stop washing. Stop washing in water that doesn't clean. Stop seeking a salvation that doesn't save. Stop twisting God's law into a self-help manual to make a better, more holy version of you and drink the wine of Christ. Drink the wine of Christ. Drink of his salvation. It's abundant wine. And as the scripture says, it makes the heart glad. Wine is, remember we said it's a symbol of abundance and gladness and celebration. You want to talk about the religion of Christ, at least in this passage. I think one of the things we're told here is celebration is the religion of Christ. Celebration. Joy in him. Delight in this one who brings glory, joy and gladness and abundance. He came to bring that. To, as as one, I heard one pastor say, he came to bring sensation. You know, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not just a, a, an empty set of, of, of doctrines and the right and the wrong. You get that. No, he came to bring an experience. Now, we can pursue experience at the, uh, you know, at the ex- self-centered v- version of that at the expense of, of the real Christ. But Jesus did come to bring joy to his people. And, and we may not know, uh, you know, this is, this is Jer- Jeremiah was talking about right here. This one, he's come. And we may know nothing of the Babylonian captivity, right, being exiled from our land. But we know about captivity, don't we? We know about sin's captivity. We know about be- being enslaved to sin or mastered by sin. As, 
as it says in the scriptures, Ephesians 2, Romans 6, that we're mastered by sin until Christ comes and set us free with his wine. And now what are we going to do? Now that we've tasted of the wine, we, we've tasted of the joy, and I hope you have. And if you haven't in a while, sit at his feet and enjoy him. If you haven't tasted of the wine, what are we going to do? Are we going to return to those, those, the waters of legalism and joyless duty? Yeah, okay, that Christ thing, but let's, let's get serious. Let's get serious about our faith, right? Are we going to add to the commands because God is holy? If, if we would respect God's holiness, and we should, let's look to his solution to our problem. How does the defilement get undefiled? It's Christ himself. It isn't the hand washing. It isn't going to happen. It isn't getting yourself ready to be in his presence. It's coming into his presence and letting him wash you with his blood. That is how we, we, become, we come into his presence. The one who gave his blood on the tree shed for our sins. The one who said, drink in remembrance of me. Right? Drink. This is my blood. This is my body. And, and the Lord's Supper, which, which, which we celebrate together, it, it is a sober meal. But I want to encourage you to think this way. It's a sober joy. It's a sober joy. Yes, it, it, the death. We're remembering his death and resurrection, and, but we're also remembering his victory. We're also remembering our current fellowship with God himself. It's a communion meal. We're sharing a meal with our Father at the head of the table. My goodness, it is awesome. And, and, we're, and it's pointing us forward to a meal that we're going to celebrate when Christ returns and he himself provides the wine for his bride. Revelation talks about this meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will sit and feast and there'll be dancing and gladness and joy and everything will be set right. There's no more wrong and no more sin and no more death. Nothing. Nothing is out of his reign and rule. You know when God rules perfectly, uncontestedly, that's the best that's the best when he rules in an uncontested way. He is glorious and gracious. Jesus is the better wine that was reserved until now. You know, in, in earlier in John chapter 1, it says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. That was good wine, but the better wine comes. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And isn't our God kind reserved the best for last? And shouldn't we just be amazed at his provision for cleansing and his provision for joy? And we should look to him and see his glory in announcing the new age through turning water into wine so that we might have life in his name. Like I said, this is the, the first of seven signs that John recorded in his gospel. And it says that Christ manifested his glory in verse 11 there, and the disciples saw it and they believed in him. So the mission was accomplished. Christ was glorified. The disciples saw it and they believed in it. You see the progression there. Glory, seeing, believing, and then life in his name. There's this progression here in, in John's gospel. And in fact, in, in chapter 20, verse 31, there's the purpose of John's gospel. That we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And if we are his disciples, 
we believe and also have life in his name. And it's not just at the, the time of our conversion to Christ as if it's just one moment. We need to stoke the fires of belief by beholding the glory of Christ in the scriptures regularly. And, and in having life, you ever think about this eternal life? I know when I was a kid, I, I just, okay, that's life forever. Yes, yes. But you notice Jesus doesn't just, um, what's it? A cheap wine, like uh, you have Trader Joe's here, right? And the two buck chuck wine. So, so Jesus doesn't just make an unending supply of two buck chuck. It's like this really cheap wine, you know, or the box wine. It's like, hey, great, there's tons of it. No, he makes the best wine. It's like you go into the, to the store there, and, and up above there's a cabinet that's locked and it's glass, and all the best reserved bottles are up there. And it's an unending supply. Eternal life is not just life forever. It's life with God under his rule and reign with no sickness, no joy, or no, no, no sadness, no death. Eternal life is the best life in the presence of God himself. He didn't just come to bring life forever. Because you know what? If that's the case, we got a pretty lame message. Do you know that? Because I don't want to stay like this forever. My nose has been dripping for a long time. It's kind of annoying. We get sick. We lose people. It, people die. This is not life forever right here. Now, we're tasting of it. Some of it's come. Jesus has broken into this mess. And he's come and he's brought some of the, the experience of the kingdom. And that gets us through the darkest moments of life. That anticipation of that future day does get us through the darkest moments of life. In fact, Ed Clowney uh, said this, Jesus Christ sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow. So he's, he's there in the, the, the wedding feast. In his joy. He's sipping the coming. He's thinking, it's not my hour yet. Mary, it's, it's not my hour yet. He's sipping the coming sorrow of his death so that today we could sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Isn't that great? Jesus sat in the midst of joy, knowing what was coming him, and he says, I, I drink that cup willingly of the Father's wrath so that we could be sitting here today amidst all the sorrow and the loss, sipping the coming joy of Christ and the return and the, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. He knew what it, what it was going to take to claim his bride, his death. And you know how we steward his suffering? If you come from a background where the, the cross was used sort of in a, a bludgeoning way to make you feel guilty about your sins. Um, and, and so the, the proper way to steward his death is to, to be sullen. Uh, I, would, I would argue with that. I would argue it is a sober moment, obviously, of his life, and we sh- it should be treated with sobriety. But I believe it's by taking hold of the joy that he brings through his death. By enjoying all that he has brought, Jesus and his bloody salvation are the good wine reserved until now, and our Father has reserved the good wine until now. And we can be grateful for the first wine, the wine of the law, but we've tasted of the good wine of Christ, and there's no going back. There's no going back. Christ brings joy. I told you I I would spend a whole month anticipating that Thanksgiving meal, and that would increase my enjoyment of it. We spend an entire lifetime anticipating the future meal when we will be at the table with our God and all things, all things will be made right. Listen, have, has, have you been, I just was thinking about this morning, have you been let down? 
Have you been let down by someone, a person, uh, a company, a church, a pastor? I don't know. I don't. Have you been let down? Well, you know, they didn't have the wine in the first place. They didn't have the wine to bring you the joy that Christ came to bring. Christ himself provides the wine, and Christ himself provides the joy of his people. So yes, I'm, I'm not surprised. I've been let down myself, and I've let others down countless times. So let's look to Christ for joy and not be dependent upon others for, for something that they can't really provide. Only Christ can provide the joy that we need to, 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 to live this life in, all of, in the midst of all of its difficulties. And we spend an entire lifetime anticipating that. And Christ gave us the, the, the Lord's Supper to anticipate that feast, to remember with thanksgiving his death and resurrection and to look forward to that feast. Jesus himself has provided both the bread and the wine for this meal, and he makes the future meal possible. And I'll conclude with this. Jesus, as I mentioned, is the good wine reserved until now, who brings great celebration to the church through his great suffering at the cross. And I think that's one of the things main points of this passage is that Jesus is the good wine himself, reserved until now, and he brings great celebration to the church through his great suffering at the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you 